You spoke about bullying before. This is such a common argument from plastic surgeons and doctors as to why one, cosmetic surgery is important and two, why they should be allowed to operate on children. When you say that cosmetic surgery is the solution, you are actually confirming the bullies, right? That there are certain features that when we find them undesirable, they should not be seen. That we should erase difference. That we should erase diversity. Cosmetic surgery is now complicit with the social problem that results in bullying in the first place. This program's content is provided solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as medical, legal or financial advice. Views expressed are opinions only. Our discussions are general and not focused on specific companies or individuals unless explicitly mentioned. We strongly recommend consulting a qualified medical professional before contemplating any major or minor medical procedures. Be advised that some content discussed may be distressing. Discretion is advised. The hosts of this program believe all people should be able to access cosmetic surgery procedures free from judgment. Welcome to Surgery Secrets, Beauty's Dark Side. I'm Madison Johnstone and co-host this with Michael Fraser. Make sure you follow us on TikTok and Instagram at operation.redress for shorts and snippets from today's interview. Now, it's not unusual to see cosmetic surgery and injectables be sold as a cure or treatment for any way that our body does not meet beauty standards. Mummy makeover, Barbie Botox, kissable lips. The marketing of our normal natural bodies as ugly or unattractive as a way to further market cosmetic surgery as the only solution is not an accident. Today we have Dr. Eve St. James Aquino, who we are lucky enough to have talk about pathologizing ugliness. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much, Madison. Thanks, Michael, for having me. So you are a philosopher who has done a PhD on pathologizing ugliness. And you have specifically looked at the cosmetic surgery industry. Can you actually explain to us what you mean or what the concept is of pathologizing ugliness? Thanks, Madison. Uh, the concept of pathologizing ugliness, it's, it's a sad reality. It's what I would refer to as a marketing gimmick. It's when cosmetic surgeons reframe unattractive features that are free from disease or injury as pathological. And there are two implications for that. It means that that feature is something that's unnatural. It needs to be corrected or fixed, and it requires medical or surgical intervention. So in a way, it's a mechanism for cosmetic surgeons to legitimize their practice and say that what they're offering is the same as any kind of medical service. And do you argue that it isn't the same as any other medical service? It is not. One of the things that I really wanted to do is to indulge that claim and say, okay, let's pretend or let's assume that ugliness is pathological. Can it live up to a lot of the clinical processes that we recognize as legitimate in medical practice? I'll give you an example. The concept of diagnosis. So the idea of diagnosis in medicine is that you look at the patient, you perform studies, exams, and then try to ascertain what is the problem, what is the root cause, and identify the medical condition 
or the disease. So often you would use laboratory tests, physical examination, or history taking, talking to the patient, asking about their symptoms and the history of that symptom. With conditions like diabetes, it's pre pretty straightforward. So you look at symptoms, you try to order some blood tests, and then see if it confirms your intuition or your educated guess that it might be diabetes. But with ugliness, how do we go about diagnosis? Is there an objective measure so that we can say that this person has an ugly feature that is pathological and therefore requires surgical intervention? In one of the papers I wrote, I demonstrated that, that the practice of pathologizing ugliness cannot really live up to the scientific aspects of the clinical process because the judgment of appearance based on aesthetics, based on beauty, is very subjective. It's very fluid. It's not the same as a blood test where you have a range of normal and abnormal. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to challenge. That yes, cosmetic surgeons claim that ugliness is a pathology. But for me, that's scientifically incorrect, but also ethically problematic. How is it ethically problematic? I know that is something you have talked about, the ethics of cosmetic surgery. Do you care to expand on that? It's a huge topic. Like The ethical dimension of pathologizing ugliness has to do with um, upholding, for example, the obligations of medical professionals in terms of ensuring that they are using medicine and medical interventions the right way and the appropriate way. And there's a lot of guidance. With every medical specialty, there are standards on when you should do a procedure, when, you sh when should you propose an intervention or a type of management. And it depends on the patient. It depends on what the patient is experiencing. It depends on evidence. What happens with pathologizing ugliness is that there's really no way for us to determine whether the intervention, medical or surgical intervention, is appropriate. The basis is not there. It's not as straightforward as in other medical conditions. So I think in terms of ethical duty or obligation for medical professionals to do what is appropriate, I think that's not very clear when it comes to the practice of pathologizing ugliness. And then the idea of upholding patient safety. Uh, with most, or at least in mainstream medical practices, patient safety is at the top of the list of priorities of medical professionals. Whatever decision they are making, they're thinking of the safety of the patient, whether it's asking for a diagnostic test or prescribing a medical treatment or suggesting a surgical intervention. But with pathologizing ugliness, we know it's not, it's not the case. The fact that you're pathologizing ugliness, it is a marketing gimmick. Your priority is to sell your service. And yes, it's always, almost always at the expense of patient safety. That's why I think it's not just scientifically inaccurate, it's also ethically problematic. One thing we've always wondered is the risk-benefit analysis. So if you're going in for a an elective procedure, but it's still medical, medically necessary, your doctor has assumed that there is a benefit and that that benefit outweighs the risk. Do you think that the benefits outweigh the risk or has your research shown that the benefits outweigh the risk or vice versa with cosmetic surgery? Again, that's a really good point and a good question that we need to unpack. 
one of the things that's difficult in the in cosmetic surgery, but also in pathologizing ugliness specifically, is trying to operationalize or understand what the benefit is. In other medical conditions, you have benefits such as curing the person from, say, the infection. If it's cancer, trying to get rid of cancer cells, you would say that those are beneficial. Other definitions of benefits for health outcomes would be prolonged life. Uh, and there are now, this is something you can challenge, but there are now measurements of um, quality of life years. Other benefits might be, for example, having more strength or stamina because you have treated the condition. But with cosmetic surgery, because by definition, these are not medically necessary treatments. Uh, these are procedures for the sole purpose of trying to improve a person's appearance. But there's no underlying condition, there is no deformity, or there's no abnormality. The supposed benefit that has been claimed is that it can improve the appearance of a person or beautify and enhance the appearance of a person. How do we measure that? It's hard to say. I don't think there's really any standard way of saying this, your face after a surgery is much more beautiful than the previous one. Because again, the concept of beauty is very subjective. It's culturally dependent and it also depends on a time period right? And then if people say benefits is about um, improving well-being because the person now is more confident, again, how do we measure that increase in confidence? So the concept of benefits arising, arising from cosmetic surgery is still not very clear. That's number one. The second is there's still not a lot of evidence. Unlike other medical specialties, every diagnostic test every intervention, every drug, when you apply for approval for distribution and market use, you have to make sure that you submit requirements to the Therapeutic Goods Administration if you are in Australia and other regulatory bodies in other jurisdictions, that you have evidence of the claims that you are making. If it's a pharmaceutical product or a drug, usually it's a clinical trial, right? We don't have those kinds of evidence in cosmetic surgery. A lot of the claims are really not backed up by evidence or science. So even if there is a claim of benefit, we're not sure what, is, what it's based on. So those are the challenges of calculating the risk-benefit analysis. I'm sorry, it has gone a long way to answer that question. But to go back and to give a straightforward answer, it's hard to compare the risk and benefits because the definitions of benefits are unclear and the risks are actually demonstrated. We know a lot about botched surgeries. We know a lot about infections, especially in Australia. So at the moment, there's, it's incomparable, right? So the risks are very clear, the benefits are unclear. So that's something that people should take uh, account of. That's something that people should consider when they're looking at uh, cosmetic surgery services, that the risk-benefit analysis is actually lopsided with the risk um, outweighing the benefits. Medically and scientifically, that might be so. However, in the advertising, it makes it seem like the, the opposite is true. So the benefits, especially prior to July 1, when the new advertising guidelines were brought out in Australia by the medical board, 
doctors, cosmetic surgeons, plastic surgeons were advertising cosmetic surgery and injectables as this hugely beneficial procedure that can glamorize your life and change your life. And no mention of the risks, no mention that you can die from these procedures. Does that frustrate you? It does. And I think I'm, I'm, I appreciate the efforts being made by the regulatory agencies, especially in recognizing that uh, it, these procedures are not harmless fun, that there are consequences. And I think it took a while for them to do that. And I think it's very important for us to put that out in the open, that the, these are not harmless fun, that there are risks, infection and potentially death, um, severe illness that you could get from taking these procedures. On the risks in advertising, the, the, the guidelines for cosmetic surgery say that you do need to put the risks in your advertising, but something that we were disappointed in is the regulator enable, the medical board enabled you, if you didn't have enough space, to put a link to it. And we argued to, in our submissions essentially, that there is no social media platform, maybe apart from Twitter, that doesn't have enough space for you to put the risks so what happens now is doctors say, just go to my website, surgery is risky, go to my website. And, um, you know, so there is that requirement, but it's not very thorough. So I think that's something that we do need to watch out, like how these, um, how cosmetic surgery services are going to understand and implement that guidance. Because as you said, it's quite vague. And it's safe to speculate that a lot of people will try to find a way to go around it. And I agree that uh, this, the concept of space and whether there is sufficient space is not an excuse. There will always be space. Uh, whether it's in brochure, whether it's in web pages, whether it's in social media posts, we know that space is quite infinite. And there's all, for, if there's all um, a space for someone's face, which is not necessary, then there should be space for warnings. You did your PhD on pathologizing ugliness. Given the recent national interest in cosmetic surgery and that there have been changes brought forward, your PhD actually predates this. What sparked your interest? Why did you look into it? Um, I do have, oh, after I did my bachelor's in philosophy, I did um, medicine. So I am a licensed physician in the Philippines before moving to Australia. And I've always wanted to combine those interests and expertise and I think cosmetic surgery has always been interesting to me as a clinical practice that claims to be in the service of appearance, uh, in the service of beauty. So I always found that conceptually interesting. But I think when I started looking into it, especially when I did my master's of bioethics, uh, I looked at the ethics of cosmetic surgery, specifically the practice of Asian cosmetic surgery, that's when I saw that there's more to it than I expected, that there are ethical issues, there are political issues when it comes to cosmetic surgery. And it's a well-studied field in anthropology, cultural studies, feminist studies. And I think my angle is from the philosophical side or the conceptual side. That's why I looked and focused at pathologizing ugliness because I found that conceptually interesting we might think that the definition of health and disease are straightforward, but actually it's not. Um, what makes one disease disease is different 
when we talk about other medical conditions. So there's a lot of debates on how we should define health, how should we define disease. So I always found that, found that interesting. And then applying that to cosmetic surgery, that's when I saw the link. Um, because in cosmetic surgery, they're claiming ugliness is a pathology. And in order to respond to that, we have to be able to understand, okay, what is the definition of a disease or pathology? And why is ugliness outside of that or inside of that, right? And I think that really sparked my interest is in trying to understand how people use the word health, how people use the word um, disease, how people use the word normal and abnormal, and then look at how we navigate that in the context of appearances to the extent that some people think that ugliness is a pathology. So I'm really coming from that philosophical assumptions that we have with words. And when I encountered um, the practice of pathologizing ugliness, that really sparked my interest. You've researched the ethics of medicalizing Asian features. Did you want to talk a bit, a bit more about that? Sure. When I talked about medicalizing Asian features, it means in the same way that pathologizing ugliness is a gimmick. Uh, medicalizing Asian features, it's something that I found when I looked at the Asian cosmetic surgery as a subfield in cosmetic surgery. In this study I did about five years ago now, and I looked at cosmetic surgery websites in Australia and South Korea, and specific, paying specific attention to any service that is labeled as Asian cosmetic surgery. So Asian cosmetic surgery is a subfield that targets or caters to a, um, people of Asian descent. And their specific feature, the specific features that they're focusing on usually are the eyes or the nose. They refer to as Asian eyes. Let's look at Asian eyes first. So they describe Asian eyes specifically as having no upper lid fold or double absence of double eyelid fold. Uh, that's why the when Asian people have eyes, it's usually narrower um, or smaller. In some cosmetic surgery websites, they call um, the procedure for it as big eye surgery. The technical term is a blepharoplasty or double eyelid surgery. And what they, in order to market their service, they would say that having an Asian eyelid is a deformity. So it is a problem to the point that it is a defect that requires correction. And in order to correct that feature, they are recommending uh, double eyelid surgery. So it's the same with the nose. Uh, some Southeast Asians, for example, have lower nasal bridge. So that's this part. And they are usually described in these websites as flat nose. And in order to quote unquote correct or fix that, they have to do a rhinoplasty to add bone ridge or at least a ridge to have that nasal bridge higher. And again, it's the same. They will describe Asian noses as deformed that would require correction or surgery. And the way I criticize it is that by using these kinds of language, they are actually medicalizing features that are natural or common or normal for some racial groups, right? 
And that's why later on, when I talk about criticizing, pathologizing ugliness, it is political. Because when you try to say that ugliness is a pathology, you want to claim that there is an objective or standard way of evaluating someone's appearance. And that there is a reference, that there is a normal reference for it. But we know now that that's not really free of um, racist assumptions. Who gets to decide what is normal in terms of appearance? Who gets to decide what is beautiful? Um, we know, for example, in the United States, um, Australia and the United Kingdom, a lot of ideals and standards of beauty are more aligned with Caucasian features or European features. So when you pathologize ugliness, you end up pathologizing racialized features as well. So features that are more common with non-Europeans. And that's something that I did uncover when looking at Asian cosmetic surgery is that they, in terms of marketing these services, they are portraying uh, Asian features as deformities in order to med medicalize it and then legitimize the practice and to sell their services. We've evaluated a number of websites as well that use quite derogatory language when talking about Asian features. Some of them do medicalize it in a way as well by saying you can improve your vision. Is that the truth? Um, there is no scientific basis for saying that um, double eyelid surgery or blepharoplasty increases vision. Uh, there are extreme cases uh, of ptosis, or that's when you have what has previously been referred to as lazy eyes. So it's when your one of your eyelids usually are lower uh, than the other. But again, that has nothing to do with vision. Uh, and I have seen those claims as well. So there's no scientific basis uh, in saying that double eyelid surgery for Asian people will improve their vision. Their vision is not problematic because of a single eyelid. I do think the regulator has fallen down here in terms of these kinds of things. I think that they've jumped on the gender problems that have come about from cosmetic surgery largely manipulating women. But I do think that there needs to be more done around the racist undertones of a lot of the cosmetic surgery advertising. I know you said that you did this about five years ago. Do you know when this started to become, is it a trend, first of all, Asian eyelid surgery or other types of cosmetic surgery targeting Asian people? Is it a trend or has it been going on for a long time? My understanding was it has been going on for a bit, probably three, four years prior to when I started it. But recently there has been increased interest on it. I think one assumption, at least for some scholars, is because of the popularity of a lot of um, Asian films and Asian celebrities, uh, specifically Korean uh, celebrities and K-pop. And uh, we know that a lot of celebrities in Korea undergo cosmetic surgery and they're quite open about it. And cosmetic surgery in Korea is very popular and quite normalized more than I, I would say so in, in Australia. And I think there is that cultural import. So Australian, um, in, in Australia, in the United States and the UK, where you have a lot of 
uh, population coming from who have Asian descent, I think they are wanting to get into those kinds of surgeries as well because they've seen it with Asian celebrities. So there is that cultural dimension that influences the uptake uh, of cosmetic surgery because people are exposed to, I think, K-pop. Um, and uh, so those are um, cultural products from South Korea. Uh, but I think more and more, um, it's also, I think the popularity is quite steady. Um, it's still very popular at the moment. And one of the reasons that some scholars um, have pointed out is the experience is that it's motivated by the experience of Asian people who are minorities in countries like Australia and in the United States. So in my study, I know that the Asian eyes, for example, are specific features that are targeted by bullying. So um, for us, I did not grow up in Australia. I grew up in the Philippines. But in studies of Asians who grew up um, in Australia, United States, and United Kingdom, and even Europe, a lot of bullying is centered around the eyes. So people are called chinky eyes, for example, and that really others them. So I think cosmetic surgery is viewed by some people as a way to sort of be part of the society or take the attention away from their face or away from their racial identity. To what extent that's true or that's effective is still um, a live question. I wonder how different this is. Like, have you ever thought about this? If I was to walk down the street and point out someone who I thought, you know, had Asian features and make a remark that they should get surgery, I wonder how close I would be to more leaning towards sort of a hate crime um, definitely being racist. But the thing that keeps fascinating me about the medical community is once you wear your little doctor hat, you can pretty much do the same sort of thing, but you can say, oh, no, I'm just offering a solution. I'm just trying to help help these people. But my thought is, aren't you really essentially broadcasting a very similar, if not same message, but it's even worse when it's coming from you as a doctor and you're doing it because you want to you wanna almost like tell them they're broken and take their money to fix them, but you know it probably won't even make them feel better. I think that's a, a very important point that practitioners should be aware of in terms of seemingly creating the problem first and then offering the solution next. It is true. There are a lot of race, racist undertones when it comes to marketing services for specific racial groups. The way you label them, the way you focus on specific features that they're probably not even aware of. The language that you use in describing features that should be considered normal or even un, you know, unsurprising. The way you single them out contributes to the problem that you claim to want to solve by providing your services. So I think that's something that practitioners, cosmetic surgery service providers should be really aware of and regulators should be aware of. That these advert ad advertisements are not harmless, especially if they're targeting specific groups. Um, it's a way of othering uh, in the context of Australia, it's the way, it's one way of othering Australians who also deserve to be in Australia in that sense. 
Uh, just because they look different, it doesn't mean that they are problematic. It doesn't mean that they are a problem that has to be solved by cosmetic surgeons. You spoke about bullying before. This is such a common argument from plastic surgeons and doctors as to why one, cosmetic surgery is important and two, why they should be allowed to operate on children because they're getting bullied and this will fix that problem. We are very against the idea of having cosmetic surgery because you've been bullied and we really believe that there needs to be perhaps better structures and processes in society to help stop bullying in the first place, but then provide proper support to people who are being bullied, especially if it does have to do with racism, sexism, homophobia, those kinds of things. I don't think that cosmetic surgery is a cure for bullying, but what what do you say to plastic surgeons that are saying, we're just giving people what they want. They say this will help them with being bullied. And I think this question is quite complex. And again, we want to clarify, we're talking about cosmetic surgery and not reconstructive surgery. Um, there is a distinction, although it's a bit blurry. We're talking When we talk about reconstructive surgery, these are surgical procedures that are done on features that are deformed because of congenital disorder, because of injury like burn or accidents, or because of a medical intervention, for example, cancer treatment. We're not talking about those kinds of surgeries. We're talking about cosmetic procedures that are done on features that are normal. They are free from disease or injury. Uh, but they're just target of, uh, but they're described as unattractive or undesirable. Bullying is a very complex social phenomenon. It's a very complex issue. And I agree with you. First off, I would agree with you that a specific one cosmetic procedure should not be a solution to bullying. Bullying is something that occurs in a social structure the root causes are deep. There is a psychological dimension to it. There's a social dimension to it. And I think we have to respond to bullying as a process. And I agree that cosmetic procedures is a band-aid. I don't think it, it's even true um, because we don't have studies demonstrating that aligning your appearance to everyone else so that you don't get bullied is effective um, or is something that you can actually get from cosmetic surgery. So there's no evidence there. And secondly, when you say that cosmetic surgery is the solution, you are actually confirming the bullies, right? That there are certain features that when we find them undesirable, they should not be seen. That we should erase difference. That we should erase diversity. Cosmetic surgery is now complicit to the social problem that results in bullying in the first place. So that's something that I think practitioners should be aware of, that their decisions, the way they justify their services, can actually affect other people in a negative way. Uh, it's not just them saying we should do this procedure. It's also them saying that uh, we should have specific standards of beauty and other uh, appearance or other features that are not aligned with these standards of beauty should be erased or should be removed. So I think practitioners should be more aware of the implications of their statements. How would you define clinical deformity versus 
someone's view that something is ugly, what's the difference? That's a difficult question, um, Michael. But there are technical definitions of clinical deformity uh, versus uh, a feature that we just find to be, or society finds to be unpleasant. Uh, and usually when we talk about clinical deformity, that there is something that was done to a feature because of, and it's caused by injury. So that could be a vehicular crash, being punched, or um, a burn injury. The other possible cause would be congenital disorders. So something happened during your development, uh, usually when you're still in the womb. And then that resulted in uh, poor development of certain parts of the body. A cleft lip or cleft palate is an example of a deformity because of a congenital disorder. Uh, um, clinical deformity can also be caused by some medical interventions. For example, with cancer treatment, uh, with radiation, radiation therapy, it can burn the skin and that burnt skin can deform into a scar. Another way of understanding what deformity is, is there is a change in the anatomy or the physical feature that results in some form of dysfunction. Um, one example would be uh, deviation in the nasal bridge. We would say it's deformity because it causes problems in breathing. Deformity can also be something that is obstructive. Uh, it, it can affect the function. So these are clinical deformities. Another way of understanding what clinical deformity is, is that there is a change of appearance from what it was. And there is a difference between deformity on a person based on that person's appearance and deformity of a person based on everyone else's appearance. So for example, you have a person with no injury uh, and then had a vehicular crash. And because of that vehicular crash, there was a fracture in the jawline that affected the facial feature. So that fracture in the jaw jawline is a deformity because it changed the feature of that person based on the feature of that person before the crash. And when you want to do a reconstructive surgery, you want to reconstruct or return that feature to what it was before the injury. Another way of understanding clinical deformity is that it's a feature that's not like everyone else. And you might have encountered the phrase significant deviation from what is expected. That's a vague way of saying that it's something that we did not expect. So with something like cleft lip or cleft palate, most people don't have that. So when we see it, um, in a baby, for example, it's something that we do not expect. Another feature that's common with children affected by someone who drinks during pregnancy, so we call that fetal alcohol syndrome, is that the eyes are too close um, to each other. So we don't necessarily, we don't need to measure the distance between the eyes, but somehow we can tell when it's something different, right? So there is an assumption that we have an understanding of what an appearance is, what is something that we can expect. And if there is a deviation from that appearance, then that's clinically deformed or that's a clinical deformity. 
But that's a very difficult um, definition. And then I think there's some thoughts running in your mind. Who sets the average, right? Because we can say, okay, one way for us to define a deformity is that if it's, it goes beyond this range of normal values, we can f- split our physical features into different measurements. The size of the jawline, we can start measuring the proportion between the eyebrows and the ears, and then start measuring everyone. And then let's come up with an average and say, this is the average. If your features fall within this average or within this measurement, then you're not clinically deformed. If you go beyond or if you are outside these ranges, then you're clinically deformed. So that's a very challenging definition because it's very difficult to set it. It's very difficult to measure everyone's faces and then come up with average. That's why I I said earlier, when we talk about appearance, it's always political because we have to know who sets the standards. And there are references. If you look at anatomy textbooks, they have all these normal reference ranges for physical features, whether it's weight, whether it's height, the distance between the eyes, the size of the lips, the size of the base of your nose. There are a number of reference ranges. Who got to set them at the very beginning is a question. Is it based on real scientific study? Uh, And we know that there are a lot of variations in appearance. That's why the question of what counts as clinical deformity, if it's something that's not due to an illness, congenital disorder, or it's not because of injury, once you start defining clinical deformity as something that's not expected or something that goes beyond everyone else's appearance or something that's not similar to everyone else's, then that becomes problematic. And that is veering towards seeing that an appearance is actually undesirable or that a surgeon found it unattractive. That's why they suggested the procedure. Talking about setting standards and who sets them, you've also mentioned in your research that some cosmetic surgeons are advertising themselves as beauty experts. Can you explain why? Because we have seen this ourselves. They market their patients as Dr. So-and-so girl, Dr. So-and-so angel. It's, it's suggesting that there's some sort of expert in artistry or beauty. Can you explain this? It's, it's very interesting. It's something that we, um, has been studied as well in the United States, but it's definitely something I encountered in cosmetic surgery websites where surgeons, one way that they do this is to talk about their artistic hobbies, to say that um, surgical practice is the same as other artistic hobbies. It's about being in touch with beauty as if it's an expertise. Another way of doing it is to just claim that they are an artist, that they are medical artists. And I find that problematic. Um, It's very interesting marketing, but I find it problematic because you are now claiming that the body or someone's body is a canvas that you can manipulate. So again, it's something that goes, I believe, against your obligation of promoting patient safety and also respecting the humanity of your patient. When you define yourself as an artist, I think what happens is it's a way of disrespecting the humanity of patients. 
um, instead of responding to their needs, you are wanting to uphold your own, I guess, artistic aspirations, which is weird. We're talking about medical procedures. We're talking about surgeries. We're talking sometimes about cutting someone open. So it's not just getting a paintbrush and then having a stroke a little bit on a canvas. That is a real artistic activity, I believe. But managing someone's body in a way that can be risky is not about art. And for sure, I think some medical practices or medical procedures, it's okay to have some form of artistic element to it. And I think surgeons talk about sutures, the way they you know, close a wound. It's influenced by their taste, right? So some surgeons would have a way of closing a wound or tying a knot of a suture or a thread. There is an artistic element on how uh, clinicians talk to their patients. It is performance, but that's different, right? So I think there is a style that's involved that we should allow in medicine that would enhance a clinician's way of dealing with their patients. But the goal there is to uphold the patient's safety and ensure that your clinical interaction is really for the benefit of the patient. But when cosmetic surgeons claim that they are an artist, it's really less to do with patient safety. It's less to do with patient interest. It's about marketing themselves as experts in art and beauty and in a way to justify why they should be the one um, cutting you open. <laughs> it is a word that has frustrated me ever since I started doing this research personally. That was, it just really bothered me. I know that we've actually done a video before where I say to doctors, please don't kill us because we aren't your artistic outlet. You know, you can kill us. And unlike art, it, with, with surgery, you can't make a mistake and just say, oh, look how beautiful it is. I just, I accidentally did my paint stroke here. I didn't mean to, you know, but now it's a different, totally different art piece and it's beautiful and you can see the beauty in it. With people, you can't make mistakes like that because you could kill them. You could harm them. And we are really glad that APRA, the medical regulator, have banned artistry as a word to advertise their skills. So I'm really glad that you have found that just as problematic as we have. So we have encountered cosmetic surgeons using the phrase work of art to refer to the body of their patients or potential clients. We've also encountered the word artistry. Another reason why I find that problematic is when cosmetic surgeons appeal to the concept of artistry, it's really a way of them turning their back away from standards, away from complying to rules and regulation, uh, rules and regulations that are required for them to fulfill their obligations as medical professionals. Because when people talk about being an artist, it's being allowed to do what you want in accordance to your values based on your style, based on your preference. Nothing to do with patient safety. Uh, that's what artists do. That's why I think the concept of artistry and the notion of being an artist is actually con a contradiction to the obligation that cosmetic surgeons have uh, to their patients, to their profession and to their practice. That's why I'm really against, I find it hilarious, but I'm really against cosmetic surgeons or any kind of medical professional referring to them as artists and referring to their clients or patients as work of art that they can manipulate or they can improve upon.
Some doctors are marketing trend-based surgeries and procedures, things like Barbie Botox. In the context of pathologizing ugliness, do you have a problem with this? I think it's one way that when cosmetic surgery or cosmetic surgeons follow specific trends, as you said, the example would be Barbie Botox or Barbie-specific procedures. What it shows is that the practice of pathologizing ugliness is, again, not legitimate or not valid. And one reason why it's not valid is that the the very concept of appearance or beauty or ugliness is very trend-orientated. It's not um, stable. Um, It can change in a matter of seconds. It can change overnight. So think of other medical conditions where this is possible. You can't just decide overnight that diabetes is no longer a problem, right? Whereas that's something that cosmetic surgeons can take advantage of with the concept of ugliness or appearance is that based on certain trends in the market, based on certain trends in our culture, like the entertainment industry, they can market their services and say that these are legitimate uh, medical services because of certain features that you have. And when we talk about pathologizing ugliness, we do have to talk about aging as well, because the concept of beauty and normalized appearance is very age-specific. Uh, If you look at examples in medical textbooks, even um, examples in a lot of cultural products or from visual media, the concept of what is a healthy body is always a young body. Uh, And um, as soon as you get to a certain age, uh, of course, there are associated medical conditions. But a lot of cosmetic surgery um, websites, cosmetic surgery providers especially the ones selling Botox, they talk about wrinkles as specific specific deformities that should be treated. And again, that's a very ageist notion. That's a very ageist concept. And it's very unforgiving of the kind of growth that our bodies go through. And in my study, I have found that some cosmetic surgeons actually talk about preventive, uh, preventative Botox saying that the earlier you get the Botox, the more effective it can be. Because if you do it later, it might not catch on or it might not have the same effect on the skin um, that you would if you do it younger. So again, this is not proven. This is not true. There is no clinical evidence or trial that proves the earlier you do Botox, the more effective it is and the longer lasting it is. There's no evidence for that. But the fact that they're using the term preventative, again, borrowing other medical language, other medical terms to justify um, why they're selling this service or why they're providing this service, uh, again, demonstrates another example of how ugliness or unattractive features are medicalized or pathologized in cosmetic surgery. To sort of sum it up in layman's terms, sunscreen is scientifically proven to be preventative for skin cancer. And they're trying to borrow that kind of language. Botox is preventative for this medical condition called wrinkles. And that's not a medical condition. It is not a medical condition. Again, um, we don't consider things that happen to our body as we age as clinical deformity. Uh, Because it's something that we expect. It's something that's not really caused by disease, but it's something that's part of 
the normal course of our lives. Um, but because there's a service for it, uh, cosmetic surgeons have framed wrinkles. Again, wrinkles are not clinical deformities as problematic features or as deformities that can be treated through different kinds of interventions. But yes, to um, answer your point, uh, wrinkles are not medical deformities. It really bothers me, that language. And it, it bothered me before a recent event, but I've been speaking to some younger people and they are actually like fearful of aging, like early 20s, fearful of what might happen and wondering like, should I start now? Like th that is what is going through their mind. Now, if we want to talk about how Botox might boost your confidence What's, there's probably plenty of studies to show that stress is not great for your body and that stressing about aging is not great for your body. So why drive a message to stress young people? And I can only put it down to it comes down to money. They're trying to move volume and as, as much filler in you and now they, they, they're, they're trying to show you that, oh, this is only a teaspoon of filler as if to suggest like it's so little you really need a lot of it and we need to put it all over you and use a combination of Botox. And, and I just think so many people are seeing this and stressing. Yeah. And again, that highlights how cosmetic surgery as a specialty or, or, or as a field is really different from other medical specialties. Cosmetic surgery is really a commercial service. Uh, and as you said, and it's been demonstrated in studies, priorities of service providers is to increase consumption of their products not to respond to health needs. Uh, if you're a nephrologist, if you're a brain um, expert, you respond to the needs of your patients. Uh, you respond to the needs of your community. And that's how you come up with interventions, whether it's new diagnosis, whether it's medical treatment or surgical tre treatment. It's in response to the needs of the people. But with cosmetic surgery, it's not the case. And what we found, what we are finding now, it's, it's the opposite. What they're doing is creating a problem, such as being dissatisfied with your own appearance. Uh, the society having specific and narrow standards of beauty so that they'd want to change their appearance. We know that cosmetic surgery as a field in general, uh, as a commercial, sort of commercial entity, is really about selling services. And that's why it's not surprising uh, what you've found is that it, it's about increasing their market value, increasing their cons, uh, consumer base. It's because of this nature of cosmetic surgery as a special kind of specialty that's less about patient interest and more about commercial interest. I want to read you a list of words and I just want to get your opinion if any jump out at you or if they all feel the same, what might be a problem because they're used regularly in the marketing of cosmetic surgery and cosmetic procedures. Normal, natural, youthful, perfect, symmetry, asymmetry, glow up, beauty goals, kissable, masculine, feminine, weak chin, thoughts. These are, in my study, I have encountered these terms as well. Um, when, so I'll group them 
I guess, into three. The first group would be terms like normal or natural. There are technical definitions of what is normal, what is natural. These are very charged terms. When you talk about, especially when you talk about the opposite of them. So not just normal, but abnormal. The term abnormal is really charged. It's, it's hurtful. That's why when you use the term normal, it hides the hurt that comes with the opposite, which is abnormal. I find these terms problematic, especially when it comes to cosmetic surgery. Again, we're not talking about reconstructive surgery. We're talking about cosmetic surgery that's in, about enhancing or um, beautifying someone's appearance. There's really no room for using terms like normal and natural. All the features that are subject to cosmetic surgery are normal and natural. They are naturally occurring. They're free from disease or injury. They just happen to look different or they, or they just happen to not be aligned with specific ideals of beauty. So let's be, let's be clear about that. The second set of terms I would call to be um, outdated terms like masculine or feminine. And that's something that we've, that I find in my study of cosmetic surgery websites, they would refer to as feminizing um, surgeries or masculinizing surgeries. Although this is still at the moment quite a live question and controversial question, but this is beyond the scope of my expertise. I'm talking about uh, gender confirming surgeries because with gender confirming surgeries, there are underlying assumptions of what is an average for a female presenting or female identifying body versus a male identifying body. And again, that's being challenged. There are supporters and critics from either side. Um, but I think when it comes to marketing your service, you have to acknowledge that there are variations in what is a feature that can be expected in a male body or biologically male body, um, or a male presenting body. So I think we should be careful in terms of reducing the terms masculine and feminine into specific procedures or specific range uh, of measurements. And then the other one are just um, pathologizing terminologies. Uh, one example is the weak chin. So using terms like weak, terms like enlarged terms like abnormally enlarged. There are different degrees of implying that there is something wrong with you, number one, and that wrong can be corrected through surgery. Uh, and I think in the current guidelines, uh, APRA of, for advertising cosmetic surgery, there is an item that says advertising should not pathologize normal features. And I think it's in recognition that a lot of these advertising materials are really using hurtful language uh, that really would convince you that there's something wrong with your feature when in fact, it's just a difference. Um, so these kinds of advertising materials pathologize difference to the extent that they really want to erase difference. And I think that contributes to that cycle of prejudice of appearance-based judgments. The more we erase difference of features, the more I think society becomes unforgiving of differences. So again, 
cosmetic surgery as a field and cosmetic surgeons as practitioners are part of that cycle. They cannot claim to be outside of it, that they're just responding to the needs of clients or patients. No, the things, the advertising materials that they are putting out there, it's contributing to that kind of appearance-based prejudice and unforgiving uh, and a culture of being unforgiving of difference. 1000% agree with all of that. It is, we are really sick of hearing the argument that they are just giving the people what they want when they are the ones creating the insecurities to start with. Just on the masculine feminine aspect. So our understanding is that in Australia, gender affirming surgery is classed as reconstructive surgery. So that sits outside of the cosmetic surgery field. That is also beyond our expertise. We haven't researched reconstructive surgery. When we've seen masculine and feminine be advertised in cosmetic surgery and injectables, it is suggesting that women aren't looking feminine enough and therefore they need a more feminine jaw. And if your jaw looks like this, you need to come here and have surgery or injectables so it can actually look more feminine and then vice versa for men. It's their jaw isn't masculine enough. We don't even, to be honest, I don't even understand what a feminine jaw is or a masculine jaw is, but that is what we're seeing. Does that fit into this whole idea of pathologizing ugliness? Uh, for sure. And also in terms of med me medicalizing racial features, uh, so especially when we talk about Asian cosmetic surgery, it really is an intersection of racial assumptions and gendered assumptions about what a normal body is, Right. Uh, a lot of Asian men are considered to be effeminate because of those what people refer to as soft features. In um, in my research in Korea, there is there are services that are referred to as masculinizing cosmetic surgery for men because Asian men are considered to be um, more effeminate looking than Western counterparts. So what these kinds of procedures, or at least marketing of these procedures are saying is that these problematic assumptions are correct. <laughs> that we should subscribe to these problematic assumptions. That there's a very specific way of looking like a man and there's a very specific way of looking like a woman. And um, I think regulatory agencies should be, um, should really watch out for advertisers or for advertising materials that uphold these problematic assumptions. Because again, it leads to um, prejudice, it leads to judgments that make us unforgiving, that some features, that there, that there is a spectrum, right? Um, that there's really no concrete or specific way of saying that this is how we should look like. On the masculine and feminine thing, where I first noticed it was a clinic putting filler in men's jaws and women's jaws and I saw them over a different period and they looked like they were doing the exact same thing to both the men and the women, putting lots of filler in their jaw and saying they're making it more masculine and then more feminine. And I looked at the two videos and I'm thinking they're the same. They're doing the exact same thing. And to me, I just felt like they were just trying to say, defined jaws are in and I can put a lot of filler in your jaw because I make a lot of money the more I put in you. So I think... Again, that's another example why cosmetic surgery is amenable to that kind of market marketing manipulation. It it's like other kinds of products in the market, whether it's deodorant, um, toothpaste, or even 
ballpoint pens being marketed to specific sects. That there is a male pen, there's a female pen, there's deodorants for women, there's deodorants for men. Uh, most of the time, they're made up of the same ingredients or same materials, but it's a matter of capturing a specific market. And cosmetic surgery, again, because it's really more of a commercial service and less like a medical specialty, it does those kinds of strategies, which is really interesting and quite worrying, right? Mm. It's the same procedure, but one way to increase your increase uh, the likelihood of consumption of your service is to market it to specific people. Again, it's similar to Asian cosmetic surgery. You want to capture a certain market, so you try to provide your procedure with a certain identity. And it's the same in this case, whether it's masculine jaw or feminine jaw. We have a problem with the word fix that suggests like natural human bodies somehow need to be changed. Do you have an issue like do you have any comments on that 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 word that you are focusing on with just fix um or fixing that's one actually one of the issues i engaged with in my project about the examining the ethics of pathologizing ugliness because the term or the process of pathologizing something which is turning something that is socially accepted naturally occurring normal into a pathology that's what pathologizing means. So what it does is to imply that some there's something wrong with your feature that is naturally occurring. It's really normal. There's nothing wrong with it that requires uh, medical or surgical inter intervention. So it's baked into the language or the meaning of the word fix to say that there's something wrong with you, but also there is something that I, as a cosmetic surgeon, can do about, right? So the word fix is very charged. It, it implies there's something wrong with the feature, and it implies that the service that's going to be provided by the cosmetic surgeon will be the one to correct the wrong in the feature. Uh, that's why I, I, I'm critical of using the word fix when we're talking about cosmetic surgery. Because again, we're talking about features that are naturally occurring, normal, they're free from disease or injury. They really don't need to be fixed. What you're doing is really just aligning a feature into some ideal or standard of beauty. You're not fixing it. And I think if cosmetic surgeons are more upfront about that claim, then maybe that's better. But to use the word fix, it's really misleading in the form of miscommunication of what you're doing to the client or the patient. I think the easiest way to know that these practitioners do know exactly what they are doing and saying, if you went to their house and said, I'm here to fix the car, I can almost guarantee they would say, what's wrong with my car? They wouldn't assume that you were going to clean it, put a nice sticker on it, put a nice fragrant scent in, uh, on the rearview mirror, they would think the car was broken and needed to be fixed. So they're not stupid. They know that word conveys meaning, but they use it anyway. And that really bothers me. Yeah. And I think it is for me, like using the word fix is really a form of misadvertisement. You know, it's, it's a failure to comply to honesty and accuracy of your claims because the assumption is that there's something wrong with that person. 
just a, another word on that, actually, I'm just curious if your opinion is correct because they do often talk about correcting asymmetry, especially with breast implants. And I know, I, I understand that in a clinical setting, so if you're in the surgery, like in the theatre, talking to your colleagues, you might say well, that patient has presented to correct asymmetry. I understand that you might talk amongst yourselves like that. But to say that to the public, I would think that, that people would look at themselves and say, well, what's wrong with me that needs to be corrected? Do you reckon that's similar to the word fix? So, um, again, the, the word correct, also there are a lot of assumptions baked into the word correct. So correcting something means there's something wrong with that thing in the first place and that whatever you're doing to correct it is to put it in the right way. So we do need to unpack what is the wrong thing and what is the outcome, which is supposed to be the right thing. Uh, the example that you gave is asymmetry. So it or, or symmetry and asymmetry. Symmetry is when two sides of the body are the same size. Asymmetry is when there is a difference in that size. And when it comes to claims about correcting asymmetry when there is imbalance, uh, again, that's it's a complex question because our bodies are not perfectly symmetrical. Um, that's why if you have, you know, you have those mirror images, so the left side of your face, if you have a mirror image of it, it will look different to your right side, to the right side of your face. So there is some level of asymmetry. It's only when the asymmetry is so prominent that it's observable. I think that's when it's classified as clinical deformity. Um, or again, when that kind of asymmetry impacts on the function of that specific body part. Uh, but in other uses of the word correct in the context of cosmetic surgery, it's the same as using the word fix. Because again, there is an assumption that there is something wrong with the feature in a clinical sense. And then the, the cosmetic procedure is a way to correct or fix um, the thing that they found to, they, that cosmetic surgeons find to be wrong in that feature. How can how can someone who is a pros prospective patient considering a procedure protect themselves from this kind of language, the pathologizing language? I think it's very hard for a member of the society just existing. It's very very hard to avoid. Um, marketing services that say that there's something wrong with your body. Um, I don't think it's completely avoidable unless you don't leave your house. But even when you interact with your phones, you might encounter marketing services that portray features of your body as something wrong, right? Um, I think the, the, the problem with pathologizing ugliness or at least the responsibility to address the negative implications of pathologizing ugliness should be the responsibility of service providers like cosmetic surgeons and regulators or practice um, professional bodies that are regulating um, service providers. So I think it's on their side. For consumers, they need, I think younger generations are more attuned to problematic marketing services or marketing messages. I think Gen Z in particular are more, they challenge 
the assumptions about appearance, about beauty, uh, when they see it. But I think the younger people can learn from older generations about being more forgiving about differences in appearance. And that's a systematic, that's a structural issue. It's something that cannot be handled by one person alone. It's something that each one of us can contribute to. It's something that we can help with. Uh, a simple way of doing it is just not calling people ugly or, or not being racist to other people or not being sexist based on appearance. That's a very simple way of contributing to the solution uh, to the problem of appearance discrimination or body dissatisfaction. We have these new guidelines proposed by our medical regulator, APRA, about the cosmetic injectable space. They're just a proposal at this point. Do you think specific words should be put, it, put in there and be banned? Words like normal, natural, fix, symmetry, asymmetry, all those kinds of words, should they be explicitly mentioned in those guidelines? To, to respond to that question, I'm... Um I'm not always comfortable with framing things as banning. Uh, I think it's better to look at what is the purpose of regulating advertising messages in other medical specialization, if they're even allowed to advertise. So any message or information that you put out into the world, you have to make sure it's scientifically accurate, right? That it's supported by evidence. If using the words like normal, natural, um, correct, or fix, these are not necessarily supported by evidence. So I think following the logic of making sure that you are not miscommunicating or misrepresenting things or promising things that are actually not accurate or not supported by evidence, I think it will follow that these kinds of words will not be allowed without necessarily banning them. It's just that they are not aligned to the standards of practices that we require medical professionals to actually comply to. Some doctors argue that advertising, by advertising, they're just making people who are already concerned with their appearance in some way that they're just letting them know that there's a solution for it. This conversation has sort of shown that maybe they're actually more responsible than that. For sure. And if we follow that logic, then the only information that they need to provide is their name, their mobile number or telephone number, their website address or their physical address. Period. Right? Because they just want people to get to them knowing that they provide specific services. They don't need all these elaborate messages that are bordering on being racist, being sexist, being ageist in order to market uh, whatever procedure that they can provide. So following that logic, a lot of these advertisements are not necessary. But yes, just to confirm that these kinds of messages have real-world impact. And it's something that contributes to the problem of being too hyper-focused on our appearance and other people's appearance. I think your research also mentioned that you've found, and so have we, that doctors say that cosmetic surgery empowers people. Have you come across people feeling empowered? Um, it's hard. So this is a very common um, debate, especially in cultural studies and feminist scholarship, 
that cosmetic surgery or other any kind of body modification um, can be oppressive. So that's one view, oppressive in a sense that it tells women what to do or it tells women what to look like. And the other side is that body modification is a manifestation or expression of freedom to choose to be what you can be, to have control of your body and what it looks like. And it's really hard to navigate this debate. And I think it's true. Both positions are tr true to some extent. Uh, it can be both some, the same thing can be both empowering and can be oppressive at the same time. I think in terms of my research, my quarrel is not with body modification and the right of individuals to have control over their body. And that control may manifest as modifying parts of themselves. My quarrel is with the practice of using disease language to market your procedures. And I think that's different because it's problematic in an ethical sense. It's really compromising the obligation of the medical professional. It's problematic in a political sense because it implies that certain features that are usually features of the historically mar marginalized and historically discriminated against are not acceptable and needs to be corrected. But it's also unscientific because a lot of practices that pathologize ugliness and the procedures that supposedly are meant to treat ugliness are not supported by evidence. And because of all these reasons, there's, that's why I'm coming from a very specific angle. My issue is with using pathology or disease language to market cosmetic procedures. Eve, we're on to our final segment now. We ask every guest the same question. In your opinion, what is the dark side of the cosmetic surgery industry? I think that the dark side of cosmetic surgery, and it, it's an interesting phrasing, I would say the dangers that are hidden in cosmetic surgery is talking about risk and talking about how cosmetic surgery is really a commercial enterprise, more of a commercial enterprise than a medical specialty. And that very nature makes it amenable to different strategies, marketing strategies that I find problematic and potentially harmful. And this is something that we talked about. Um, they can make claims that are not supported by evidence. They can make claims that are simultaneously racist, sexist, and ageist. And it's because they're this kind of commercial enterprise. And I think it's time for regulators to really look at these practices, the things, the messages that are being produced or generated by cosmetic surgeons in the form of brochures or cosmetic surgery websites or any kind of advertising materials. That these messages are contributing to a culture of being overly preoccupied with appearance and also being unforgiving of differences of appearance. And I think that proves that cosmetic surgery is not harmless fun. It's not just about negative or side effects. And I think those are really important. The risk of death, the risk of infection. I think the larger social and cultural impact of cosmetic surgery and the way they message or the way they construct their advertisement and services 
is also problematic. And there are ways for us to address those problems. And I think regulators and the current improvements in guidelines are on the right track, but I think they can be pushed uh, to be clearer in terms of guidelines for the way cosmetic surgeons or cosmetic surgery service providers market their services. What are three tips you would give to patients? I think patients, if they're interested in cosmetic surgery, they should be, they should feel safe to talk about it to their friends, to their family, even to their GP. Uh, they, sh they should be allowed to ask questions. They should be given correct information. And I think uh, medical uh, professional organizations have the responsibility to provide information and make sure there is a website that patients, clients uh, can look into when entertaining the idea of getting a cosmetic surgery procedure. That they're not getting that information solely from a cosmetic surgeon or one cosmetic surgeon or one service provider. And then I think people should be able to do what they want and they should feel safe. They should not be stigmatized from wanting to do something with their body, whether it's in the form of body modification that's done by cosmetic surgeon. But I think people should be aware that, again, it's not harmless. It's not like putting on lipstick or putting on makeup. It's different. There, of course, the risks vary depending on the procedure, but there are procedures that are more, that are riskier than others. And I think clients and potential patients should really look into the side effects and the risks and then think about whether it's something they want to go through. And if they do go through it, they should be supported uh, and again, not stigmatized. What are three tips that you would give to practitioners? I think practitioners in general should just not lie. Don't lie. Don't uh, make false promises. And then the third thing, please don't appeal to the concept of artistry when talking about your profession. You are first and foremost medical professionals and your obligation is to the interest and the safety of your patient. If you want to be an artist, you can do it outside the clinic uh, in your own private space. And finally, a common thing that patients hear if they have unfortunately been botched or injured is that cosmetic surgery is an exercise in vanity and therefore they got what they deserved. We're trying to dispel that a bit here. What do you say to that? Nobody deserves to be harmed, right? I think we have to dispel the idea that Modifying your body is problematic. I think it's something, again, we have to be forgiving. In as much as we want to embrace difference, we also want to embrace the choice of individuals. And if they are harmed by a medical professional or a service provider who's supposed to be subscribing to specific standards that assure safety, it's the fault of the service provider. It's never the fault of the patient. It's never the fault of the health consumer. I, I do not want I do not want to support a culture of policing, especially policing women's choices and policing women's bodies. 
And I, I, I want to contribute to the message that we need to dispel the myth that people who are harmed by cosmetic surgery deserve the harm or deserve the pain. Nobody deserves that. And everyone should feel safe. And health consumers, patients should, as much as possible, be protected from unnecessary side effects or risks that were not discussed with them. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure having you on this podcast and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of value from listening to you today. Thanks, Madison. Thanks, Michael, for having me. I hope the discussion uh, could provide insights to practitioners and potential cosmetic surgery consumers. It's really important that patients understand that looking different is not a disease that undergoing cosmetic surgery carries significant risks and that they need to be well-informed before undertaking anything that might modify how they look. Make sure that you follow us on TikTok and Instagram at operation.redress for snippets and shorts from today's episode and also trailers for future episodes. Thank you. Thank you.